we're going to hear from a mighty man of God. If you know him, you love him. If you've been in the marriage class, you know he's amazing. He's my dad. I've seen him be faithful to God for so many years. And I'm not having him preach because he's my dad and I have to. I'm having him preach because he's living the message that he's about to preach. So it's going to be really good. I've gotten a snapshot of it and I was challenged and encouraged. So I need everybody to stand up to your feet. Give a standing ovation for the one and the only Steve Zanako. Okay, uh, first off, um, you're going to notice two really big immediate differences between Andrew and I. Uh, one is our poor worship team lost all their screens this morning because they count on these newfangled things electronic. I don't. I am a paper and pen guy. In fact, I think all of this stuff, it's just a fad. It's going to go away at any time now. <laughs> So one is that I don't rely on the digital. Two is that you will not see me doing this thing where Andrew comes up and balances and talks because I can't pull that off. I will be in one of your laps if I do that. So you can sit back and relax. I'm not going to be up there on front. Last week, Andrew introduced our new series, and it's called Everyday Jesus. Andrew encouraged us that we need to understand and believe that Jesus cares about each one of us individually and personally. We need to know that why he cares and that we need to understand that his caring comes from his deep, deep love for each one of us personally. We also need to know that Jesus is life. It's just that simple. We cannot live life as it can be or as it should be without Jesus, a part of our lives, every day. And we have to believe that our lives matter, every single one of our lives. And not just for some far-off place for later, but for today and every day and for the world and for the kingdom. We're going to be turning to one of my favorite stories in the scripture, and boy, there could not have been a better setup song, and I think it's titled Reckless Love of Jesus. If you just remember that tone and those lyrics, it really wraps up the message and where I hope we go today. We're going to be turning to John chapter 4, and we're going to get there, I promise you, but it's going to take about 10 minutes. If you'll stick with me, I want to do a little bit of setup before we dive deep into that story. So just stick with me for about five or ten minutes. The point of the series is to penetrate our hearts and our souls with the reality of the gift that God has given to us to experience him in every day and experience with him every day. He is with us every day. He is for us every day. And that needs to penetrate our hearts and our souls in that reality because it's a game changer. Over the next three weeks going forward, Andrew's going to lead us to all the places that a reality that of an everyday Jesus intersect our lives in the practical ways we live out our lives. He's going to lead us through the times of where an everyday Jesus intersects our time, our money, and our physical bodies, or our sexual purity. But for this week, for all of that to have any meaning or have any impact, we have to address the question about our faith and belief in the accessibility of God. Is an everyday Jesus really available to us? 
Let me illustrate. I believe in the President of the United States. He is the most powerful man in the world. And the truth is that much of what he does probably could impact my life and how it lives out today and every day in the world. But I am not likely to ever speak. I told you, I don't trust these things. I left it on. It was recording my message. So the President of the United States, I'm not likely to ever speak to the President of the United States. On top of that, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of people and layers that are between me and the President of the United States. And even if I could make it through all those layers, I am not convinced that if I could lay my concerns before the President of the United States, that it would, quite frankly, impact what he decided to do and how he lived out his calling. So I can acknowledge the power of the presidency of the United States and the power of the president of the United States, and yet still not have it impact my day, day to day. I can believe in the power of the president and yet not live like I know the president. In fact, I live every day. I acknowledge his power, but I don't live like I know him. I think we can live our relationship with God even as Christians, in the same way. We can know that God exists. We can even know he's powerful. We can even know that he is good. But if we don't have access to him, then what impact does it have? We have to believe all of that about him and the fact that we have access to him. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, more progress is made in one moment in silence with God than years of study of God. I found this to be true. One moment in the presence of God with God carries infinitely more power than hours of study. But for me to actually move into that truth I have to believe that I have access to him. I have to believe that if there's power with God, then I have to believe that I can be with God. And for the several decades of my journey, I didn't believe that. Or at least not as fully as I understand it now and today. One day, early in my investigation of Christianity, I was driving down the road and I heard a man say this. He said, my heart cannot rejoice in something that my mind rejects. Let me say that again. My heart cannot rejoice in something that my mind rejects. I believe it's true. I will not go hard after something or put my trust in something even if my heart wants to, if my mind is saying to me all the time, it can't be true, it's not achievable, it's not possible. Does that make sense? I ran into it as I invested Christianity. I came to Christianity with two premises. One, that the Bible was not true. I believed it was good teaching. I believed there were great stories 
and they believed they led by example, but I did not believe that the Bible was true. Now, I had never done any investigation of the Bible. I didn't know anything about how it was put together. I knew nothing about the historicity of the Bible, nothing. I just assumed that it wasn't going to be true. And that mind block hindered me from rejoicing in its truth. So then I investigated, and I found out the archaeological stuff that backs up the Bible. I found out it wasn't just a bunch of guys sitting down and writing stories. It was written by different people at different continents and different times, and yet when you put it all together, it makes the same story. I found out that there are prophecies that took place 700 years prior that all came, play, came true in the person of Jesus Christ 700 years later when they didn't even know he was going to exist. I found out the mathematical odds of all of that happening. I found out that the Bible is a piece of literature like no other piece of literature. I found out that in all of history, there is not one single piece of literature that has much manuscript backup as the Bible. And all of a sudden, the mind barrier started to come down and I could rejoice. Same thing with the resurrection. Dead people don't rise from the dead. And you know what? I didn't believe it was necessary. I thought the story of the resurrection or a spiritual resurrection was okay. But that limited how much my heart could rejoice in that truth. But then when I looked at the evidences of the resurrection, I looked at the matter of fact that Paul, one of the biggest writers of the New Testament, says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you are all fools and our faith is in vain. So I guess it was pretty important. And then I started to look at the backup for all the resurrection. And I heard a lawyer say, if any of the evidence of the resurrection were brought into any court today, it would be proven. In any, by ready rules of evidence. And I started going through the arguments about the swoon theory and how Jesus faked his resurrection and how the disciples. And I found out it took way more faith to believe those things than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And again, the hurdles came down. And all of a sudden, my heart could rejoice. And like Thomas... I went from saying, show me your hands, dead men don't rise, to my Lord and my God. Like the women at the tomb that walked up and they walked over to bathe a dead man and they found him alive. And it says they ran away with both joy and fear. Joy. Jesus is alive. That changes everything. And some fear. Jesus is alive. That changes everything. Do you see that sometimes our hearts, our minds, can block our hearts from rejoicing? And one of the places that I have to say to you that I believe the church, the body of Christ, is greatly hindered right now and held back because of unbelief and confusion is on how intimate God desires to be with us and how accessible he is to us every minute of every day. I have spent 30 years spending time with God. I have. And it's all been wonderful. 20 of those years, praying, reading, studying, all good. It was amazing. But there was more. 
there was more that I discovered in about the last 10 years, and it changed my life. Like Andrew, I came in contact with Antioch, and I want to be really sure. It's not like Antioch is the only people that are doing this. It's just that who I happen to come in contact with. And Andrew was coming home from school, and I got to tell you, he was talking about Jesus in a way I'd never heard him talk about Jesus before. And he was talking about Jesus in a way that I wasn't talking about Jesus. In fact, as often as he used the name of Jesus, I realized I don't say Jesus' name that often. And you know what? I read the book about Antioch, and I read this amazing story after years of encountering the people of Antioch and how they lived out their faith. And I watched them. And I couldn't deny that I was before people who felt and acted like they had just talked with Jesus that morning. And when they prayed, they didn't just throw up a prayer to start a ministry so that things could go. They threw up a prayer with anticipation that they were going to hear back from God. And that wasn't me. And I remember hearing one of the stories of Antioch of two of the missionaries that, um, I think it was Afghanistan, two gals that got captured by the Taliban. They were in prison for a while, and they were on Focus on the Family. Some of you remember that. It's one of the largest Christian programs across the country. And Charles Dobson, who has spent tons of time around lots of Christians, is interviewing these two. And as they're telling their story, he actually interrupted them. And he said, can I just stop you? Because I need to tell you, you even say the name of Jesus differently than other Christians. And I saw this depth and felt this depth. And I wanted it. And even more challenging to my paradigm, I saw people who were in love with Jesus living out an even greater faith than people who were only trying to be obedient to Jesus. I know that's a challenging statement. But I saw people who were actually in love with him carrying out and living out a deeper faith than those who were just trying to be obedient to him. And I wanted some of that. After I believed, and this is what causes me to believe we got an issue, after I experienced some of this, I tried to teach it. I was going to a Bible study. It had about 40 or 45 people, men in it. And this proves it's not just a denomination. It's not any one church. This Bible study probably represented 13, 14 churches in the city. And I started teaching on the availability, the accessibility of God. I started with asking them to fill out a card and said, okay, if we all profess to love God and follow God, can you just say, put a rank on how much you profess to love and follow God, and then do me a favor on the other side, rank how much time you spend with him. And then tell me, how do those two match up? And they were very honest and almost to the man in the room, and it backs up every statistic we see in Christianity. They said the two don't match. I profess one thing, but my time pursuing him and spending with him, it doesn't match. So I proceeded to teach. I started walking through the scriptures about the accessibility of Jesus, and I started with the accessibility that Jesus had to God and their relationship and how he said, I don't do anything unless I first hear from God. And I started doing this, and I'm looking around the room, and you know when you're teaching and you look and you go, they're not with me. I could tell they were disconnecting. I think I even saw some eyes roll. Doubt filled the room. And finally, one man, who was my friend, blurted out, and said, Steve, we're not Jesus. And we don't have the same accessibility to God. 
And it was like it let the air out of the room, and everybody was like, yeah, that's what we're thinking. That's why we're not with you. This is impossible. And with sadness, I looked at them, and I said, okay, then maybe that explains why the two numbers on the card are so far apart. Because if you don't believe you can meet with them, then why would you get up? Why not get going and get to work? And I found, I think there is a huge disconnect inside the Christian body that is crippling us. For your heart to rejoice in the truth of God, you must believe that God is accessible to you. Let's be honest. If I come to you in the morning and said, hey, God's down in the basement and he's waiting for you. And he wants to hear all about your life. And then he's going to speak over your life. Is anybody not going to go down there? Is anybody going to say, sounds good, but I got to go to work? Anybody going to choose to go to the gym instead? Anybody going to choose for 30 minutes more sleep and pass us accessibility to God? Don't we have to admit and acknowledge that our lack of going to God, if we're not going to him every day, probably has a lot to do with how much do we believe he'll really be there when we go to him. And yet, and yet, a close and intimate God is critical to our faith, and God knows it. It's part of the reason he came to us in three ways, love of the Father, grace of the Son, fellowship of the Spirit, three ways to access us at all times, at all places. I want to turn to a precious story, encounter in the scriptures that I believe answers so many of the heart questions about Jesus' accessibility to us. Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, tons of things that we could pull from this story, but for today, I want to look mostly at just one huge point. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, and the story goes like this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that, gives, that stands before you, you would say, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And when I was praying about what to preach on in this message, I read this verse, had no idea, and God said, that's it. That's the message. That's the title. And if you'd remember nothing else, please just remember that title of God crying out to you, if you knew, if you knew. Let's look a little closer at the story. There came a woman of Samaria, draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Jesus leads with asking the woman for water. But as far as we can tell from the story, Jesus never gets that drink of water. Never gets the drink of water. It seems clear that this encounter of Jesus with this woman had nothing to do with Jesus getting anything from the woman. It had everything to do with Jesus giving something to the woman. Some context for the encounter. Water was usually drawn early in the morning or late in the evening to avoid the midday sun. 
This woman was there right at noon. By all encounters, it probably was so that she knew that she wouldn't encounter other people if she went at noon. By all understanding, she was an outcast, and we learn probably why as we go on in the story. Further, the route that Jesus was taking to Galilee that led him through Samaria, it was forbidden to Jews. You see, Jews hated Samaritans. They were half-breeds, and the Jews thought of them as dirty and impure. And so Jews would go a longer journey, harder journey, just to avoid coming in contact with Samaria, Samaritans, or their land. Further, men in the culture interact, did not interact ever with, directly with other women. Jesus breaks every rule as he starts the conversation with this woman. So Jesus, in order to have this encounter, takes a route that no other Jewish leader would have taken so he can encounter this woman. Jesus, the Jew, speaks to a Samaritan. Jesus, the Jewish man, speaks to a Samaritan woman. Jesus, the Jewish holy man, speaks to the Samaritan woman who is an outcast and probably an adulteress. This meeting, it didn't just happen. This was a purposeful, deliberate action on the part of Jesus. And the meeting had nothing to do with Jesus getting a drink of water. Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask me and I would give to you. Jesus begins to press into the woman's life. Go and get your husband. That was the topic she wanted to avoid more than anything else. This was the one place she did not want to go with him. It was this topic that meant and why she was alone at the well. It was this topic that meant that the reason she would be alone for the rest of her life. It was this topic that she was probably certain would make him, just like everyone else, leave her. And so she tries to deflect. I have no husband. Not a lie, but neither is it the full truth. And God zeroes in. Verse 17 and 18. You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. You have said this truly. And exposed and vulnerable, she stands before Jesus. And she has a choice. What does she do now? And I believe in the face of full rejection, in the face of her greatest fear, but somehow being in the presence of Jesus has birthed a new hope in her, a hope that she had no, from no place else. And so she takes a chance. <laughs> takes a chance of one more rejection, one more hurt, one more being turned out, and instead she embraces her hope and she takes a chance. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Understand what she's saying. I have made a mess of my life. I have made a mess of my life. And I can see no hope of this ever changing from where I stand. But I hear of one 
who can change the world. I hear of one who can change my world. I hear of one who has a promise that I don't have to be alone for the rest of my life. Are you him? And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Against every racial bias, against every cultural boundary, against every religious rule, Jesus reveals himself as the savior of the world for the first time that's recorded to a Samaritan woman who is an adulteress. If you only knew God's love for us. If you only knew. And he had a message. If you only knew, I am him and I am here. And that's his message to us. I am here. And I am him. The truth, the truth is that God's presence is his great desire for us. In Exodus, they used to lay out the bread of his presence, literally the bread of his face. They would put that out before themselves. In Moses, when Moses is leading a group of obstinate people and he cries out to God and says, I got to lead these people and they don't want to go. I don't want to go out there unless you go with me. And what does God do? I, my presence will go with you, Moses. Job is suffering horribly and he says, I don't care if you slay me, I will always worship you. But I will make my case before you, the God of heaven, because that is the right of a child of God. <laughs> he gives us that right to make our case before him. And he's there to listen in the Psalms. He's the present help in times of need. His presence is all over the promises of Jesus. We will make our home in you. I am the vine. You are the branch. Don't ever detach from the vine. I will abide in you, and you can abide in me. I will never leave you. And in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is left for us, and he says it teaches us, leads us, comfort us, allows us to rejoice. The Bible tells that God's Spirit wants to whisper to your spirit on an ongoing basis, you are a child of God. That's the desire of his heart. It's so beautiful. If we only knew, if we only knew, even as a Christian, I didn't know. And when I did know, I have to tell you, it changed everything. I've shared with you before, I hit a crisis point in my life where everything I thought I could sustain was falling apart. Every Every fear that I held in life was now at the forefront of my plate, including the fear of losing a child to death. I had nothing left in the tank. I couldn't get out of bed in the morning. And I just finally went to the sunroom tile floor, and I've shared this with you before, and I got down on the floor, and I cried like a baby and begged for God's help. And that morning changed my life. <laughs> 
because I felt like God got down on the floor with me and held me. And then I heard this promise. Steve, I will be enough for them and I will be enough for you. Not a promise that we would live or that the things would go away, but somehow this overwhelming promise that my presence is even greater than my gifts. And I believed him. And I believed him. And I started pursuing him entirely different. That was my woman at the well experience. See, I just realized that Jesus, for me, had taken a horrible, hard, painful journey to me so that he could be there in the sunroom. He had denied every boundary that existed, every physical barrier, every boundary that I had put up, and every failure and sin that existed in my life, and he went through every single one of them so that he could be there in that sunroom and say to you, I am here. He had to be close enough so that I could hear it. I am him, I am here, and I am enough. And it was life-changing. Just so he could be close enough for me to hear him. You see, the who is the answer. And God knows it. We spend a lot of time asking God, what? What should I do? We ask him why, why are we going through this? When, when will this change? And he keeps pointing us and saying, focus on the who. Because if I am who I say I am, then the who swallows up every what, why, and when. That's why he keeps taking us to the who. There's no avoidance. There's completion. There's peace. There's complete freedom in the who. I was thinking, how do you think the woman of the well felt from that day going forward? Do you think she went back there often, hoping maybe I'll get to see him again? Maybe I can talk with him again? <laughs> maybe I can feel like that again? But you know what? She didn't have that promise because Jesus hadn't yet purchased that possibility for her. But he has for me and for you. My well's down in my basement, and I run there every morning now because I know he'll be there for me. I realized how God knows exactly what I need. I read, I pray, until I hear that same promise. I am him, I am here, and I am enough. That's how I know when I'm done when I hear those three promises. Is it really possible? Can I have that stack, sweetheart? My lovely assistant, Linda. I just offer this as a testimony. These are my journals, just from the last couple of years of spending time with God. And if I could show you the things that he's spoken over and encouraged, I don't know how I'd live without these. I don't know where I'd be without that time at my well.
No. The woman left Jesus. Oop, I'm going to put these down. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> the woman left Jesus and went to the people and told them all about Jesus, and eventually they all went to Jesus themselves. And a wonderful transition happens in verse 42. John 4, 42, it says, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. They did not need to live on her stories any longer. Now they had their own God stories because they had met Jesus. And I invite every single one of us and you to do the same. Create your own history and your own well and your lives will never be the, change, be the same. No, this encounter with this precious woman was not about Jesus needing a drink of water. In fact, when the disciples return, when the disciples return, they brought Jesus a bunch of food too and he rejected that as well. He said, I don't need that. I've got food that you don't even know about. What do you think he was talking about? I want to plant before you that I believe what he was referring to, what nourishes the soul of God was his encounter with his child. That was his food. That beautiful encounter with a child is his, where he could say, all that you're looking for, all that you need, all that you will ever need, I am him. I am here. And I am enough. If you only knew. Can you give him a round of applause? Thank you so much. That's so good. All right. We are uh, going to, I want to ask you to stand up right now. And we're going to close our service. We're going to sing that song again. The Reckless Love Song. And uh, we do this as a part of our service uh, almost every week where we have a moment where we can respond because the Bible talks about how it's great to hear the word of God, but it's better to respond to the word of God. And we just got the word of God. Amen. I'm encouraged. And um, as we do this song, as we go back into this song again, I want to encourage you to not just let this be, oh, that one more song at the end of the message, but let's respond to this message right now. And we just heard about Jesus encountering this woman at the well, the place where she went to hide, the place where she couldn't be met, you know, where, where she had to just be by herself. And the well where she went to hide became a place of revival for the city and the whole world around her because Jesus met her at the well. And it wasn't like she got a theology degree at the well. She didn't get a seminary degree. She just met the reckless love of God. And as we sing this song again, sometimes we have people who can pray with you over to the side. Sometimes we invite you up to the front. But I want to just let you, invite you to stay where you are, but in your heart, in your mind. Maybe you need to close your eyes. I don't know. But during this song, I want to challenge you and invite you to go to your well. Go to your well right now. The place that you don't want Jesus to meet you. The place you don't want somebody to know about. The place that's too far. The place that's just safe because it's just you and nobody knows. But I want to invite you to go to the well right now. And maybe just in this moment, you know, we started the service saying Jesus comes and he touches those places. And then he gets up and preaches about Jesus touches those places. And maybe Jesus wants to touch that place in your life right now. Not with a degree, not with a bunch of knowledge, not with a rebuke, not with the shame, but with the reckless love of God. 
Because if he could love you there, then it changes everything. And I believe that in these moments, if we'll go to our well right now, if we'll let Jesus encounter us with his reckless love at our well right now, we're gonna help other people meet Jesus at their wells too. There's people in your life, they've all got wells. We've all got wells. I've got wells. And I need Jesus. I need Jesus. So as we sing this song, maybe, maybe you need to sing it. Maybe you just need to listen to it. Maybe you just need to sit there. But I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna really believe that in these final moments together, we're gonna meet Jesus at the well. And it's gonna change everything. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you that you are a God of reckless love. We thank you that you are a God that is not afraid of our wells. You, do, you don't avoid our wells. You intentionally, at your own cost, at your own effort, at your own reputation, you come to our wells. So Holy Spirit, just in our final moments together, would you give us the courage to go to our wells right now? Bring us to our wells, and Lord, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see you, to receive this truth of this song, that your love is reckless. It's reckless. It's reckless. We can even know it at the well. Lord, and I ask that right now, everybody's well that's been a place to hide their life would be a place where they receive life. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit.